Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Welcome to our study in the New Testament book of Acts. The book of Acts was written by Luke, who was a friend and companion of the Apostle Paul. Luke had not been one of Christ's 12 original disciples, but was a Greek physician who often accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. Luke had thoroughly investigated the stories of Christ. His first book, known as the Gospel of Luke, was written over only after he had carefully interviewed many of the eyewitnesses to Christ's life and ministry. In fact, it's generally believed that Luke's detailed account of Christ's birth came from his interviews with Mary herself. Only she would have known the whole story. His second book, The Book of Acts, is the book that we're going to study, and it was a continuation of that process, and much of it was based on his own eyewitness accounts of events in the days of the early church. It is believed that Acts was written somewhere between the years of 60 and 62 AD, during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome when Luke was with him. A writing later than 63 AD is unlikely, as Luke makes no mention of several significant events in the life of the early church that occurred after that date. For example, he makes no mention of the martyrdom of James, the head of the Jerusalem church, who was put to death around 62 AD, nor does he say anything about the burning of Rome in 64 AD, which was blamed on the Christians and led to their subsequent persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. Luke also makes no reference to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, which was one of the most significant historical and religious events of the time. Because his thoroughness would have made Luke likely to include all these important things in his account, it's generally held that Acts was written no later than 63 AD. As we study Acts, we'll see that the first half of the book deals mainly with the work of the church in Jerusalem and the initial spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, whereas the second half focuses on the missionary journeys of Paul. Through it all, the role of the Holy Spirit is emphasized as the followers of Christ learned how to live under trial and how to act towards an often hostile government and culture around them. You know, these lessons still hold true today and we'll find ourselves continually challenged to a wholehearted dedication to Christ, no matter how difficult the circumstances that we face. So let's begin to look at the text of Acts chapter 1. 
He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Luke begins where his gospel left off, with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and he reminds Theophilus that after Christ had suffered on the cross, he rose from the grave and gave many convincing proofs to his disciples that he really was alive. These proofs were so believable and persuasive that those who followed Jesus went on to risk and often give their lives for the sake of the gospel or the good news about Christ. Jesus appeared to them on many occasions during the course of 40 days after his resurrection as he taught them about the kingdom of God. And Luke describes one of those times in verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus gave them two commands. First, they were to wait in Jerusalem for God's promised gift, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would empower them to carry out his second command to them. And that was to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth as they carried the good news of Jesus to all people. The Greek word for witnesses in verse 8 is a very interesting one. It is martus, the root for the English word martyr, someone who is killed or suffers greatly for a religion or other cause. In fact, many of these early witnesses for Christ wound up giving their lives because they would not deny the truth about Jesus. I know that some of us listening may be thinking how glad we are to be living today when believers are not likely to be thrown to the lions or burned at the stake as they were. But you may be interested to know that more people have died for their faith in Christ in the last hundred years than in all of the previous centuries combined. It seems the seed of the gospel is always watered by the blood of the martyrs, and my hope is that we would live worthy of their sacrifice. To be a witness means to be loyal to Christ no matter what the cost. But how can one stand firm, even in the face of terrible persecution? 
The answer is found in verse 8, where Jesus reminded them of the Father's gift that was coming to help them. They would receive power from the infilling of the Holy Spirit. God would not leave them to do these things alone. He always equips those he calls, and he provides for his people even in the most difficult of circumstances. The disciples needed this help because even after the miracle of the resurrection, their first thought was to ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? After everything they'd seen and heard and experienced over the last three years, their minds were still focused on Christ as the one who would free them from Roman oppression and rule over them as a nation. But to the very end, Jesus patiently helped his followers understand that the kingdom of God is not a political kingdom, but rather a spiritual one. God's rule over men's hearts. And now they would have another helper along the way. He told them not to focus on the time's or dates of God's restorative plan, but rather to focus on being filled with the Holy Spirit and taking the good news of salvation to the world. Verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. With the final instructions to his disciples given, Christ's earthly ministry was complete, and he ascended into heaven to take his seat at the right hand of the Father. The cloud mentioned there in verse 9 that hid him from their sight was no ordinary cloud. The Greek word nephile used here is the same word used to describe the glory cloud of God that led the Israelites in the wilderness in the days of Moses. The cloud hovered over the tabernacle when Israel was to encamp and then moved ahead of them when they were to advance. The cloud was God's presence with them. Both the gospel accounts and the text here in Acts tells us that this very same glory cloud of God will accompany Christ when he returns one day. As Christians, we believe that history is not just a haphazard collection of chance events which are going nowhere. We know that all of creation is moving toward a final day when Christ returns to be judge and Lord of all. And though we may not know the day or the hour when that will occur, we are called to make ourselves ready for that day whenever it comes. 
Christ ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives, just outside the wall of Jerusalem, and Luke actually tells us in his gospel that the disciples who were with him at the time returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And what they did next was very revealing. Look at verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. I would just point out that Judas was a rather common name at the time, and Judas, son of James, is a different person to Judas Iscariot. The eleven remaining disciples immediately went to the upper room where they were staying in the city, and there they joined together, united in prayer with the women who had followed Jesus, along with his mother and his brothers. But something had changed. Prior to Christ's death and resurrection, the disciples were often vying for position with one another, even arguing among themselves as to which one of them was greater. But those arguments are now forgotten. As Christ struggled in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember, they'd been unable to pray as they kept falling asleep. But here, prayer has become their focus. The women who had followed Christ were also in that upper room, as well as Jesus' mother, and surprisingly, even Christ's brothers were with them. Those of us who studied the book of John together will remember how we were specifically told in John chapter 7 verse 5 that in the early days of Christ's ministry, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him and yet here they are. They too have come to accept Jesus as their Messiah and gathered with all the others to pray in that upper room how they have all been changed since the resurrection of Christ. No more jealous infighting, no more slow obedience, no more skeptical unbelief. They were united in waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Judas Iscariot is notable in his absence, and in verse 15 we learn, In those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilt out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akhaldama, which is field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, 
May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Before we look at the fate of Judas who betrayed Jesus, it's important to note a couple of things here in verse 15. First, it's hardly surprising that Peter is the one to speak to the group, as he had long been the leader of the disciples. We'll look more at what he actually said in a moment, but what I also want you to notice at this point was that there were 120 committed followers of Christ in Jerusalem. Surely this is one of the most amazing and uplifting observations about the early church, that a small band of ordinary people who likely had never traveled outside of Judea before somehow evangelized the whole world in the power of the Holy Spirit. God is able to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And no matter how small our own fellowship, no matter how small our own sphere of influence, God is not limited in the way that he can use us to transform a culture and nation and yes, even the world. We just have to commit to doing things according to his word and operating in his power as we join him in the work that he's called us to do. Peter begins to talk about Judas Iscariot, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He affirms that Judas had indeed been one of the original twelve disciples who'd been part of Christ's earthly ministry. The disciples must still have been reeling from the fact that one of their own group had done such a terrible thing. Do you see how Peter couches what he's going to say in the Old Testament scriptures. We'll get back to this in a moment because Luke interrupts what Peter is saying to explain something to Theophilus who may have needed some background. In verse 18 and 19, Luke explains to him how the 30 pieces of silver Judas was paid for his treachery was used to purchase a plot of land where he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilt out. In his gospel, Matthew fills in more of the story behind Luke's insertion. He writes in Matthew 27 verses 3 to 5 that when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas came to his senses and tried to give the money back to the priests. But because blood money couldn't be returned to the temple treasury, they refused to accept it. Instead, as it was prophesied in Zechariah 11.13, the money was used to purchase a field that became known as the field of blood because of what happened there. 
Some think that Judas hanged himself in that field and that his body broke open when it eventually fell from the rope. A particularly gruesome end for the one who betrayed Christ. We don't know why Judas decided to betray Jesus. If he did so solely for the money, that was certainly the worst deal in history, for he sold his Lord for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Or was he perhaps disappointed by the fact that Jesus apparently was not going to be the political deliverer he had hoped for, and so he betrayed the Lord out of bitter disappointment? Or maybe did he do it out of the hope of trying to force Christ's hand to begin an uprising, never intending him to be put to death? That would certainly explain his bitter remorse. We cannot know for sure, but what we do know is that Judas was a liar and a thief who regularly stole from the disciples' money bag. Though the others never suspected his true nature, Christ knew what was in Judas's heart. And some have suggested that perhaps Judas was driven to destroy Jesus because Jesus knew him for what he was and yet offered him love and the opportunity to repent until the very last. In the end, he could not bear the goodness of Christ. Whatever the case, Judas goes down in history as the most evil of men, the one who betrayed the Son of God. Luke picks back up with Peter's words in verse 20, and I want you to notice how the early church depended on the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament to guide their actions. Peter quotes from the Psalms in verse 20, saying, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Quoting King David's words from Psalm 69 verse 5 and Psalm 109 verse 8, Peter points to the need for someone to take Judas's place in their group. But perhaps another memory prompted Peter to realize that someone should be appointed to that position. Matthew 19 verse 27 to 28 tells us of an interaction between Peter and Jesus where Peter asked Jesus, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, 
Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Apparently, twelve individuals who had been with Jesus are to have authority over the twelve tribes of Israel at Christ's return. Two men, Joseph and Matthias, were proposed, and after the disciples prayed, lots were cast to discern whom God had chosen. Now, it may seem strange to us that they would cast lots to make a decision, but amongst the Jews, it was the natural thing to do. All of the offices and duties of the temple had long been settled in that way. The names of candidates were written on stones which were placed into a vessel. The vessel would be shaken until one stone fell out, and whoever's name was on that stone, they would be elected to office. This passage is notable, however, because it gives two important truths. As they looked to replace Judas, the main criteria was that whoever they chose should have been part of their company from the very beginning. Someone who had both witnessed Christ's ministry on earth as well as his resurrection from the dead. I think that there is much we can learn from this even today as Christ followers, for we are also to testify of a risen Lord who proved by his resurrection to be just who he said he was, God in the flesh. We do not present our religion, our moral code, our denomination, our ideas about society and politics, rather We tell the world that God has come in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, conquered sin and death to redeem us, and that he is coming again. Those who would be true witnesses for Christ cannot merely have heard about Jesus. Christianity is not just about knowing the story of someone who died long ago. Jesus is not just a character in a book. He is our living friend and savior. And we are to give witness to the fact that we know him personally and that we have a relationship with the living Lord that others can too. A Christian is a person who daily lives with the risen Lord. Jesus should be part of our everyday life, not just someone who visits from time to time on a Sunday. I know some have questioned if the disciples didn't act hastily here, that they appointed someone to take the place of Judas too quickly. For surely Paul would have been a better choice as God's twelfth man. And those who think this way point to the fact that Matthias was never heard of again. 
However, I don't really agree with that line of thought. It's clear that God's word and prayer was the foundation of their decision. Not only that, but John 20, 22 reveals that the disciples had already received the Holy Spirit on the night of the resurrection when Jesus, I quote, breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's John 20, 22. So they would have had the Holy Spirit's leading even then. Paul said of himself in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8 that when compared with the 12, he was the one who was abnormally born because he'd not been a follower of Christ prior to the resurrection. In verse 24, the disciples' prayer made it clear that they wanted God's will to be done and that they asked God to show which of the two men he had chosen and God's choice was Matthias. Some have wondered why Matthias was never heard of again after this, but truth be told, Peter and John are the only two of the twelve mentioned in Scripture after this in any great detail, along with Paul, of course, who had not even been a follower of Christ at this point. In fact, most of what we know about all the other disciples is contained in what some dismiss as just church tradition, but which does have, in most cases, historical support. I do not think the disciples made a mistake in waiting on God to make his choice clear. And won't it be wonderful in eternity to hear all the stories of these amazing brothers and sisters whose faithfulness kept the gospel alive so that we could hear it and believe it today. Whatever the case, this small band of people managed to turn the world upside down, as we will learn later. How did they accomplish that? It was by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we'll learn more about that as we go into chapter 2 in our next lesson. Believe me, you won't want to miss it. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.